Welcome to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent. Welcome to this Weber Wenzel Legal Insights podcast on the grey listing of South Africa by the FATF. Our guests today are Kirsten Volmerans, a partner in dispute resolution, Rashad Karim, a partner in banking and finance, and Lerato Lamola, an associate director in our financial services regulatory team. All speakers have been closely monitoring the developments regarding the Financial Action Task Force decision to place South Africa on the grey list on 24 February 2023. Today we're going to be discussing uh, the grey listing one year on. Lerato, take us through a recap of the past 12 months. Thanks, Gabby. I think it's important probably to start uh, before our grey listing, which was on the 24th of February uh, 2023, because um, a lot of the work that South Africa did in in its attempt not to get onto the grey list actually ended up being the foundation for um, a lot of the remediation that uh, South Africa has attempted. So in 2021, we had our mutual evaluation by the Financial Action Task Force, uh, otherwise colloquially known as uh, FATF or the FATF. And in South Africa's um, attempt to uh, resolve uh, some of the deficiencies that FATF picked up, it introduced a legislative, uh, financial, um, as well as various uh, enforcement initiatives. So I think the main legislative amendment was the General Laws Amendment Bill, which tried to amend various pieces of legislation, uh, introducing various uh, concepts, uh, for example, um, beneficial um, ownership. Then our regulators, a lot of um, our financial sector uh, regulators had their mandates um, amended to give them more enforcement and supervisory powers. On the enforcement side, uh, we had the establishment of the Fusion Center, which is an alliance of various law enforcement agencies and investigative bodies. And um, looking at what uh, Fusion Center has been able to um, achieve, uh, since its uh, inception, they have successfully recovered approximately 1.75 billion rand in criminal um, assets. Uh, and then turning to finance, because obviously um, all of these agencies need to be uh, capacitated, uh, National Treasury uh, in its midterm budget policy statement uh, indicated that it is setting aside 14 billion rand uh, to capacitate various agencies which are crucial to fight uh, against crimes, uh, including financial crimes. So a lot of work has uh, been um, undertaken. Thank you, Lorato. That certainly sounds positive. Kirsten, if I may, a hot topic in this space is enforcement. And South Africa's placement on the grey list underscores the need for stronger measures to combat money laundering and financial crimes. As I understand it, uh, conviction rates serve as a crucial indicator of uh, South Africa's progress. This is exactly right, Gabby. But unfortunately, this is one of the reasons why South Africa was put on the grey list in the first place, because our convictions in the money laundering space are simply not consistent with our risk profile. So to be fair, South Africa has taken steps to implement various reforms to strengthen our anti-money laundering framework. And these include amendments to existing laws, enhanced enforcement mechanisms, and also increased collaboration with international partners. 
But despite these efforts, um, I've seen that challenges still persist, particularly in achieving higher conviction rates. So it's clear that South Africa's money laundering conviction rate remains well below desired levels. This raises questions about our effectiveness of our enforcement actions and, importantly, our judicial processes. According to the Financial Intelligence Center, only a fraction of the reported suspicious transactions have actually led to successful prosecutions. Yeah, Gabby, and this indicates room for improvement in our country's judicial processes. And what do you think are some of the weaknesses that are um, threatening our progress uh, in this regard? So one of our most significant and, and can I say obvious shortcomings is our NPA. Unfortunately, this is arguably one of our most important law enforcement agencies in South Africa, and reform, well, at least fast reform, is needed as cases are being thrown out or they're not even pursued to the point of seeing the inside of a courtroom due to relatively simple issues like delays and poor investigative skills. Maybe let me touch on a recent and extremely painful example, which is our 2.2 billion Kusile power station corruption case involving former ESCOM boss Michele Coco. So he argued that the corruption charges against him should be dropped due to delays in the case. And unfortunately, in November of last year, the court agreed and the case was struck from the roll due to unreasonable delay in completion of the investigation. So this is just a single high profile case, Gabby, that I've pointed out. But I can show you that there are copious other cases which never actually see the light of day due to delays during court proceedings, uh, technical shortcomings, or yeah, simply just a shortage of hands on deck. The examples that you've set out, um, Kirsten, are obviously quite different to sort of the more complex financial crimes and investigations. Um, these cases often involve intricate financial transactions uh, comprising of international networks that require specialized skills um, and resources. If we are falling short on the basics, uh, such as the case that you mentioned, um, it is hard to fathom us achieving positive conviction rates. What do you think is going to um, change? So this is true, Gabby, and but I think it's fair to say that whilst we do face these very real dangers, it's important to point out that there is a very strong push to make improvements, both from the public and the private sector. I'm looking more towards the public sector. I mean, given what is very obviously a big issue, delays occasioned during court proceedings, it's definitely extremely helpful that our MPA is seeking to enhance uh, what we call alternative dispute resolution mechanisms through moves to introducing a new policy, which provides for a limited form of non-trial resolution, which is specifically aimed at corporates. This policy um, is in line with international best practice and is called a Deferred Prosecution Agreement, or a DPA. Could you perhaps tell us more about a DPA, a Deferred Prosecution Agreement? So we need to see it in action, but the idea behind it is that the NPA will still file charges at court against the company, but simultaneously it will request that prosecution be postponed to allow that company to demonstrate good conduct. So, for example, how this would work is that the company could pay a fine, it would provide the required information to assist with an investigation, and it would also take steps to improve its anti-corruption compliance records. Um, in company, importantly, must also voluntarily disclose all the facts and information relating to corruption. It must admit responsibility, return all the funds gained from the offences, and also pay reparations. So in the case that the company complies with this DPA, the MPA may dismiss the charges filed. Um, obviously, the adverse applies too if the company breaches the DPA 
then the MPA will enter a plea of guilty. I should also just mention, Gabby, that this is a recommendation arising from the Zondo Commission. So it's certainly a positive step to see it being enforced. On a somewhat more positive note, I think it's fair to say we've witnessed unprecedented cooperation amongst law enforcement agencies, regulatory bodies and international partners, resulting in significant strides towards dismantling money laundering networks and holding perpetrators accountable. Would you agree? 100%. So a really a good positive move was as recent as December 2023, where the FSCA issued one of its toughest enforcement actions yet. A gentleman by Mr. Jacobus Caldenes, he's a director of Classic Financial Services 1, received an administrative penalty totaling 143 million rand. So this investigation followed an investigation into financial transactions entered into from the period January 2019 all the way through to May 2023. And a very recent example, even more recent, is the BHI Trust matter. In this case, the FSCA is investigating a Ponzi scheme run by someone called Mr. Craig Warner, who's a fund manager and trustee of the BHI Trust. We're all watching the space closely because the prosecution of the BHI Trust and the wrongdoers will be an extremely important case to determine South Africa's enforcement strength in prosecuting fraud and activities which breach uh, these financial regulations. Thank you, Kirsten. It seems the key takeaway is that we need to remain steadfast in our commitment to building a resilient, accountable financial system. Turning now to Rashad. Uh, Rashad, could you elaborate on the process of blacklisting by the EU, um, specifically in connection with the uh, grey listing announcement, and just take us through that, uh, whether there is a comparable high-risk jurisdiction list in the UK and how that interplays with our grey listing? The EU's AML in all of its publications uh, relies heavily on the FATF's grey list. However, uh, the European Union's new methodology for identifying high-risk countries is conversationally known as the 2020 methodology, effectively states that when a country is placed on the FATF's grey list, it is automatically assumed to present a risk to the global financial systems and is therefore presumed to um, represent a risk to the EU internal markets, which is then the so-called EU blacklist. However, this is a major sore point in that unlike the blacklist of the FATF, which identifies those high-risk jurisdictions um, singled out for countermeasures, the grey list identifies countries that are in fact cooperating with the FATF to implement an action plan for addressing their strategies and for the AML deficiencies that they have. However, the EU process, of course, does now not adequately consider the commitment and progress made by these jurisdictions and thus it fails to distinguish them from countries that pose a true threat to the global financial systems. The EU and its member states, of course, argue that they are well within their sovereign rights to take whatever measures they may deem necessary to protect their financial systems from money laundering and terrorist financing risks. However, in our view and the general consensus that the proportionality of the approach has to be questioned, as the EU seems to have grossly um, exceeded the precautions called for by the FATF, and the EU's countermeasures, of course, can range from requiring European financial institutions to apply enhanced due diligence to transactions involving designated countries, to actually prohibiting EU financial institutions from uh, establishing branches in those countries. So therefore, the impact on these member states can range from de-risking individual citizens and respondent banks to actually curtailing foreign direct investment in their national economies, which can be catastrophic. As for the UK... 
for by way of some history, of course, as expected in uh, early December, His Majesty's Treasury issued an advisory notice that South Africa has been placed on the schedule of, um, it's, uh, they title it the high-risk third countries under the UK money laundering, terrorist financing and transfer funds regulations. However, I think it must be remembered that since 1 January 2021, the UK maintains its own list of high-risk countries, separate from the EU list, and accordingly, amendments to the EU list do not necessarily affect the UK. The UK list, however, similarly results in regulated businesses in the UK, um, such as credit institutions and uh, financial institutions, needing to apply enhanced cost uh, due diligence measures being put in place, enhanced ongoing monitoring to any business relationships with any South African uh, entities linked to that South Africa's entry onto the list will now also apply to South African persons or entities and then also to any transaction ordinarily requiring customer due diligence measures involving a South African person or an entity. Thank you, Richard. I think you've anticipated my next question a little bit, but um, to the extent that you haven't, in the past uh, 12 months, practically, what's been your experience of the impact um, that the grey listing has had on international transactions involving South African banks? And as a follow-up, are there any particular legal measures uh, that you feel South Africa must undertake to resolve the issues uh, leading to the grey listing? I think the reality is that um, adjudicating impact is unfortunately not an easy or precise science, as the effect is not necessarily instantaneous. But that said, I think having regard to, for example, an event study methodology assessment that was performed by the South African Reserve Bank um, in its financial stability review, if I'm not mistaken, in late 2023, could have even been in December, uh, it found that the SA stock market and financial services sector responded far better, interestingly, to placing of South Africa on the grey list than they would have in the event of another sovereign downgrade. And even though the study did not necessarily control for proximal events, I think there was a demonstration of strong evidence that the FATF grey listing news, unlike the sovereign downgrade, did not significantly impact on stock market returns. I personally think another reason for this is that the potential impact was already priced in before the announcement was made uh, of us being placed onto the grey list. I think in addition, when we look at countries like Mauritius, which we of course use as a comparator, Unlike Mauritius, where its grey listing was a profound shock to the, that reverberated through the entire financial system of this admittedly small country, citizens and business uh, saw this as being directly relevant to the livelihoods, and therefore the impact was perhaps more pronounced. Uh, in South Africa, the news of our grey listing is not as widespread amongst our population as is evident from the fact that a mere 12 months after the announcement, there is not the same level of media hype or national conversation. Uh, an interesting tidbit and example was that, you know, South Africa's grey listing was not even on the agenda at the recent BRICS summit, despite talks of a future common currency, which is, of course, contrary to what many commentators have said would happen. So that said, I think there are, of course, a number of reasons why perhaps we have weathered the storm to date without too much interruption when compared to Mauritius. A uh, particular reason could be that South Africa depends less on external capital flows versus Mauritius with no natural resources. I think another one is that South Africa is marred with so many other problems from poverty and inequality to crime and lack of growth that this is perhaps just being seen as but one of many emergencies that settle South Africa. However, I think it's clear that there's no place for such complacency and it is fully expected that in the longer term, the failure to resolve the deficiencies raised by the FATF may result in SA staying on the grey list for longer 
which will then be expected to have adverse implications for the country's risk premium market depth and liquidity, mainly due to capital outflows from non-resident investors, which in turn will then result in the hard impacts that need to be staved off. But to sum up, I think we're still perhaps in the honeymoon phase, uh, to to use that phrase loosely. Um, However, it must be noted that uh, various key stakeholders are not just riding this out. And the fears that SA will stay for an extended period on the grayness has greatly subsided in the past few months. In the last report of the FATF, they have indicated that South Africa has made positive progress in tackling technical compliance deficiencies in its anti-money laundering systems. And in fact, Minister Kodongwana indicated in his medium-term budget statement that government expects to have dealt with all of the deficiencies identified by the FATF by early 2025 which is why we remain optimistic that this will mean an end to us being on the grey list and more importantly see South Africa uh, after all of this having systems in place which will ensure the correct controls and checks and balances are in place for the ultimate benefit of its people. Thank you for those insights, uh, Rashad. Building on that, Lerato, what are um, some of the recent developments from our regulators in response to the mutual evaluation report? When South Africa was grey-listed, it committed to addressing uh, eight strategic deficiencies. And one of those eight was an increased or rather uh, a commitment to uh, improving our regulators' risk-based supervisory um, approach. Uh, So over the past 12 months, we've seen all of our um, financial sector regulators Uh, have an increased focus on AML requirements of our financial uh, institutions, focusing specifically uh, on the FIC. Uh, The FIC has taken um, upon itself to gain insights from its counterparts from um, other jurisdictions. So uh, in particular, uh, Mauritius uh, being uh, one of um, our closest neighbors who has recently been able to remove itself from the grey list, as well as uh, gaining insights from uh, the United Kingdom and learning from how they were able to implement um, the AFTF's uh, recommendations uh, into their uh, domestic law. Uh, The other trend that we've been seeing is um, an increase in administrative sanctions. So all of the regulators are becoming more aggressive with uh, imposing sanctions for non-compliance. And the sanction um, amounts themselves are quite hefty. So our legislation um, allows uh, the FIC to impose fines of up to 50 million rand. And they are imposing fines up to that limit. So those are just some of the trends that we've seen with our regulators to date. Building on from that, Lorato, how does National Treasury respond to the FATF's recognition of South Africa's progress in addressing compliance deficiencies? Um, And what role do the recently enacted legislative amendments play in this improvement? Yeah, so I think it's important to note that at various intervals, South Africa is required to report back to the AFTF um, on its um, progress. And the most recent engagement was in October slash November um, last year. And South Africa successfully asked the AFTF to re-rate it. And and the result of that re-rating is that, just to refresh everyone's memory, in 2021, uh, South Africa was found to be 
deficient on 20 of the 40 recommendations. And post this re-rating, um, we are found to be either fully compliant or largely compliant with 35 of the recommendations. So that means that we have five recommendations which we are currently actively working on to get ourselves off of the gray list. And that goes to show that over the last 12 months, you know, South Africa has been actively working, you know, on those 15 deficiencies, which we are now um, meeting the AFTF's uh, standards in. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Weber Wenzel Legal Insights podcast. It seems that our conclusion is similar to that of 12 months ago, that in order to get off the grey list, everyone has a role to play, including the public and the private sector. However, we are hopeful that South Africa has made great strides to get off the list by 2025, uh, particularly in light of the progress made in respect of the uh, recommendations from the FATF. You have been listening to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. You can find and subscribe to the podcast on all major platforms. For more expert legal insights and updates, visit WeberWenzel.com.